The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, where we help you think about the nature of human beings, what we do and what we make with the raw materials of creation, and how those cultural activities of doing and making reflect our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world. I'm Ryan Aris, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Ventrella to the show. Jeff is Fellow for Jurisprudence and Political Thought with the EICC here, and he's Senior Vice President of Training with Alliance Defending Freedom. Jeff's also the author of the book, The Cathedral Builder, Pursuing Cultural Beauty. This is episode four of season one of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This season is all about culture, and today we're going to be talking about law and the family as two of the pillars of culture, and how Christians can live lives of joyful, godly service within a fallen world. This show is packed with practical insights about how to think about and go about building godly culture. Jeffrey Ventrella, welcome to the show. I am delighted to be participating here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, it's uh, I've been I've uh, been looking forward to this. We always start off with a uh, a passage of scripture to kind of uh, shape and inform our discussion. And for today, I'm going to read Jeremiah 29 verses one through seven. And then Jeff, I'll ask you to uh, to maybe help us help us understand that how it would have been how it would have been understood by its original hearers, and then what it what it means for us today. Sure. Great. So, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeff, um, maybe you can just uh, tell us a little bit about the original context of this passage, how it would have been understood by those it was, uh, it was originally intended for. Sure, yes. Uh, the context is, is quite significant and quite relevant. It's 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army had captured the very center of culture. They captured Jerusalem. They invaded the center of their religious activity, the temple. They plundered it. They carried off King Jehoiakim as well as 10,000 captives. They dragged them from Jerusalem to Babylon. The journey took about three months, 600 miles across the Arabian Desert. And they ended up in Babylon, which was the largest and most magnificent city in the ancient world. But as a student of scripture would know, Babylon is also used not 
because it was an excellent cultural manifestation. It had wonderful architecture, wonderful gardens, all that sort of thing. But it was also uh, the place of the very enemies of Jehovah God. And it was a very impregnable place. It was a place where uh, their enemies lived. It was an impressive place. But to those who were following the true and living God, it was a foreign place. It was an idolatrous place. And in fact, it was a place of their actual enemies, the people who had plundered Jerusalem. And it was a place where there was no Davidic king. There was no Mosaic law. Uh, there was no constitution based upon the Torah, the way of human flourishing. And all their familiar landmarks were gone. And here are the people in exile, away from their culture, away from what's familiar, in God, who is in the passage, as you read, the high and lofty one, the transcendent one, is also the one who identifies with them, the God of Israel. It's that God, then, that takes action, initiates action, while they're in exile, and gives them a lesson in how to live in that sort of deplorable cultural milieu. And that's really the substance of this letter preserved to us uh, in the scriptures. Wow. So it's... Uh... I guess this is one of those inst one of those instances where the Bible is kind of a uh, a master of understatement. So. I think that's right. <laughs> it's so important to God that His people understand how to live in um, when things aren't all hunky dory, when things aren't all copacetic. That He not only gives the prophet a message, He gives a tangible letter and preserves them and gives them a game plan. What's fascinating to me is the game plan differs from a lot of what you hear in evangelicalism, uh, sadly, today. I've right. heard leading evangelicals say, oh, when facing with a with this sort of situation, just grit your teeth, you know, look at your own sin and motive. I've heard evangelical leaders say, well, abandon Babylon's public square and just focus on the institutional church. I've heard them say, you know, you need to separate yourself and go kind of go huckleberry picking for Jesus. Stay out of things. Keep your head down. Right, right. Christian, you know, I've heard Christian leaders say, you know, we ought not to engage. We ought not to testify before city councils. We ought not to uh, be involved in uh, litigation of these issues because if we do that, we will slow down the Lord's return. And I think we need to come together and say, you know what, that's really just, um, frankly, nonsense. And we don't say that pridefully or because we have a different agenda. We say it because God has, in fact, told us how to engage, how to live faithfully, not just to survive, but to thrive in a fallen world, even in Babylon. Sorry, I get excited about this stuff. So, clear word from God. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, that uh, that dovetails nicely with uh, with kind of a follow up question on that passage. Um, you've mentioned some of the ways that evangelicals have have maybe abandoned this uh, this this exhortation or this commandment. How should we interpret this passage from Jeremiah, this prophecy? How should we how should we apply that today? Well, I think we need to understand that the Christian worldview is the worldview that affirms all of reality, and it affirms it in, in a story of creation, fall, and redemption. And that theme is the story, and our stories fit within that. And here we see God giving us particulars that are not just limited 
597 BC. Rather, it's a particular that encourages us and shows us the compass, the way, uh, when we are in this time of between this day and that day, the journey between the cross and the consummation. And so uh, God gives them, first of all, a lesson in theology. He tells them to look up. He gives them a lesson in ethics. He tells them how to live, in other words, to look outward. And he ultimately gives them a lesson in hope, a lesson in eschatology, or a lesson in where we're going, tell us, if you will. Right. He tells them to look forward. Right. So looking, uh, looking upward, looking outward, and looking forward. That's, uh, that's God's... Yeah. Uh, that God's instruction for us eternally. That's right. Uh, now, Jeff, I wanted to ask you about your book, uh, The Cathedral Builder. Um, sure. The, t- the title itself is, uh, is really interesting to me, partly because, at least in, uh, in my own context, I've heard a lot, and we've, we've kind of been surrounded by a lot of talk of um, culture wars, and uh, that's fine as far as it goes, but uh, it kind of drops you in at step two. Um, as far as I understood it, but uh, but you get back to, or you get you get back to the point that culture is first of all something we build. We can't uh, we can't fight with something if we don't have it first. But as soon as you talk about building, um, you start to or you need to assume a design plan or an order or a law code. We all set out to build, um, as you mentioned, a cathedral, a, something that's beautiful. Nobody sets out to build a heap of rubble. What uh, what are some of the ways, sort of throughout history, that people have tried to order their cultures? And I guess uh, where does uh, where does the Christian locate the basis of our cultural blueprint? Yeah, those are those are very important questions and they're enduring questions. Uh, the notion of a cathedral I chose because it's intergenerational and it does aim at uh, reflecting the very glory of God, the Creator which, uh, to answer your question directly, uh, the Christian story, the Christian narrative, which is about real reality, reality as it exists, is about a cosmology, a structure. And Hmm. that structure basically has two options. It's either the creator and the creation, that's one option, or there's just stuff, however conceived. And the cosmology uh, tells us that if it's real, there's a creator and a creature uh, distinction that God is involved in the creation, uh, but he's not the creation. It tells us that the authority uh, is over and above the creation, that there is an authority, a lawgiver, that's related to the creator. Well, that's quite helpful. That tells us that nothing in creation can be uh deity or divinized, and that is a great safeguard. Uh, In the same way, we see this played out, uh, for example, during the liberation of the Israelites uh, crossing over the Red Sea. What does God do once he liberates them from Egypt and slavery? He supplies them with a transcript of his very holiness as summarized in the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and the context couldn't be more clear. How does a free people live? They live according to the design and purpose of their creator and redeemer, the one who liberated them. And to do that, he provides them uh, with much uh, 
authority and room for flourishing with the law of God. And the law there is not what we think about in a common bureaucratic way in the West. Rather, it's the way of flourishing, the Torah, the way of not only pleasing God, but loving neighbor. And so it's the law that allows us to then creatively uh, engage in this cultural building process in a way that promotes human flourishing. And as we see this then uh, develop over time, and then ultimately when the king of kings comes, who of course is called the uh, Lord of Lords, the ruler of the king of the earth, and that's of course Jesus, we then see that throughout that um, uh, experiment that various ways of applying this way of flourishing uh, has allowed great experimentation uh, when done correctly throughout the world. And so it, it's wonderful to see the um, uh, creativity. We, in a sense, uh, become recreators. We, uh, as the image of God, we create in a derivative way under his authority. That's kind of a lot of uh, gobbledygook, I suppose, but that's really <laughs> how I see it. And then we can get you know specific if you'd like, but that's what I see. Now, the flip side of that, Ryan, is this. If not God, then what? There can be no neutrality. This cosmology, the way the world really exists, shows that there is no neutrality as to who or what is God, and there is no neutrality as to law. And it's either going to be the law above the law, or it's going to be something functioning as the law above the law. It's going to be part of creation, which is disastrous, and we've seen that throughout history. So it's there's, there's no possibility of a... Uh of a legal vacuum, like there, something is going to be enshrined into law. That's right. The, the world is structured such that there is always a law to which we defer. Now, what could that look like? Well, it could be uh, history, capital H, which is what Hegel wanted. Right. Which, of yeah. course, then Marx and Engels piggybacked on, got rid of the, the uh, religious language and just said, well, no, it's just, in, it's just material historical processes. Well, okay, how'd that work out in the 20th century? <laughs> Not a lot of human flourishing, right? And so we, 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 we labored under well sometimes well-intentioned ideas, such as Descartes, who was a faithful follower of Christ in the Catholic tradition, but was just really wrong in how he conceived of the structure of reality, which led to this essentially Kant's fact-value dichotomy. Right, so then yeah. religion became that which, which was subjective, that which was opinion, that which was personal, and had no application in the public square, which again created what? The rise of who became God? Man became God. Whether individually or collectively, it's still saying that the creation is God. Uh, we've been there before, called the Tower of Babel. It didn't work so well. Yeah, there's another good understatement. Um, but, uh, so you mentioned that, uh, God's the one who gives the law. Um, yeah. but, uh, but you all, you also mentioned that God or that, uh, mankind in a derivative way, I guess, appropriates and applies that law. So it's, uh, would you just, uh, would just help us flesh that out a little bit more? Um, how the law of yeah, God, how the law of God applies today? Mistakes that are made. It's, uh, one is we think that um, the gospel is politics, 
And the other mistake is we say that the gospel has no relevance to politics. Of course, politics involves public ordering and law. And so the question becomes, uh, how do we then look at what this good thing God has given and apply it? Well, the Apostle Paul wrestled with this and told us. He said in 1 Timothy, we know, it's a matter, not a matter of debate, because hmm. we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right, right. And he, go, he goes through and gives essentially nine out of the ten commandments of general categories of the usefulness of the law in a non-Israel public setting. But now how do we work that out? And so man has to understand, for example, there's a distinction between um, manslaughter and first-degree murder and capital punishment. Well, then how do we procedurally deal with that? Do we enact these things by edict, such as in a monarchy, or if we're living in classical liberal setting where there is a constitution, which is a, a good thing in my view, it protects against uh, protects dissent and that sort of thing. Mm. But then how do we actually work that out procedurally? How do we work that out substantively? So, so that we have the grace of law, not the purity of law, uh, as the Puritans used to say. So huh. that's what I'm saying. There's sausage to be made with respect to this. What is the age? For, we know that the, the law of God requires multiple witnesses for particular kinds of things. Okay, well, how do we then assess the credibility of those witnesses? Are those witnesses always personal? Uh, do they have to have a particular age? What about the incompetency of witnesses with respect to um, uh, incapacity, whether temporary or permanent? Hmm. And so man gets to participate in that sense in the law of God to work out the, the equity, the intentionality of some of these provisions of God's law. And so we uh, think about it in those kinds of categories. That, For example, the law of God doesn't tell us how we ought to order uh, airline traffic. Right, and yeah. In order society, it's very important to human flourishing. Well, that then tells us that we need to pay attention to human flourishing and then work backwards and say, okay, what would it look like? The law of God doesn't tell us to drive on, on, on which side of the street, and yet the law of God tells us to protect human uh, ordering and to guard against harm. We ought to have some type of defendable uh, uh, and dependable convention for ordering our uh, interstate commerce and driving and all that sort of stuff. So in that sense, man is making law, positive law, but I would again go back to the law of God. Uh, as the psalmist says, we have to be careful not to, quote, frame injustice by statute, Psalm hmm. 420. So here we, here we see that the positive law has a moral dimension as well. And the positive law is a conduit either for justice, which would be reflecting God's law, or for injustice. And so the psalmist understood very clearly that there is a moral responsibility of the civil magistrate, whether that's a legislature, a monarchy, or what have you, and that responsibility is not to frame injustice by statute. So is there a role for, for man-made law, a positive law? Absolutely. But that law must be buttressed against and may not violate what is just. 
And what is just is not some abstract notion, but rather it, it, it derives from the law, but the law, the very law of God. So I hope that helps understand how the sausage is to be made. It takes wisdom. It's not a copy machine. Just let's just photocopy uh, the law of the covenant, and that'll be our law. Well, that's not what God intended whatsoever. Right. Just kind of leapfrog back across however many thousand right. years of of history back to that. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's very helpful. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, one sure. thing, one thing that I wanted to, uh, and this is switching gears a little bit, but uh, another one of these pillars of culture that you mention, uh, and Jeremiah makes much of it in the passage that we read at the beginning, is is that of the family. And I remember uh, listening to something of yours where you say that society's core building block is marriage, and that yeah. kind of uh, I don't know. I don't want to say it came out of nowhere, but it came. Uh, it came as a, almost like a bit of a non sequitur. I mean, I expected uh, from you as a lawyer to hear a good bit about law, but to, what what does marriage have to do with building a beautiful and godly culture? Yeah. So um, let, let's uh, go back to first things. And one of the key things you must understand about this culture building activity, which stems from the cultural mandate, both. Uh, pre-fall and post-fall, and so uh, it goes back to what is fundamental anthropology. What is man? What hmm. is mankind for? And so um, we must understand that mankind uh, was created, first of all, that the image of God is social, contrary to libertarianism, contrary to social contract theory of Locke and Hobbes, Huh. That mankind is designed to be a social being, that the image of God is social. Why? Because mankind derives from a uh, holy trinity, that one being that is eternally free in person. And so we learn from that that love is not self-directed, it's other-directed. We learn from that that the image of God is social. And we also learn that after Adam is made, uh, that it, God says it's not good, not in a moral sense, but in a structural sense. And so, of course, then Eve is created. Hmm. Adam delights in the development, in the creation of his wife, his complementary wife. And so we see then in the original design of being Imago Dei and in commission for the cultural mandate that mankind is a partnership. Huh. Interestingly, it is a pre-political institution. The state is not extant at this point, except in the mind of God. And so the family is the primary pre-political social institution. It's the core of what it means to be made in the image of God as it relates sociologically. So in that sense, uh, we find Jeremiah reflecting God's desires. Like when you're living in a godless, pagan, corrupt evil generation put particular focus on marriage and the family. He tells them to build homes or build houses, but the houses are for homes. Therefore, marriage and giving in marriage and for us to think um, intergenerationally. And so we see huh. that the family then, and I use the definite article, the family, there are not various kinds of families, there is <laughs> the family is to be that bedrock, that nurturing standpoint for this notion. 
things are unimportant, they're just not the core. It begins with the family, and God draws our attention to that as it exists um, both back to creation. Interestingly enough, Matthew 19, Jesus goes back. Uh, he's proven that he's the Messiah in many ways throughout Matthew's gospel, and by 19, he, he, he leapfrogs over the bureaucratic regulation of divorce and remarriage and said it should not be because I'm here now. We need to go back to the beginning. And so he's reinstituting, if you will, or, or not reinstituting so much as drawing our attention to what has been instituted now by the power of the Messiah, that the ideal, the design, is this notion of this pre-political institution of the family. Right, right. And that, that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of something that uh, that Jesus made a habit of, um, kind of a, a restating and a, a fulfilling and in some cases an intensifying of that original, that original mosaic design. Absolutely. Yep, that's right. That's a powerful, I guess, exhortation for for the family and for the the good of uh, of marriage. Well, and I think it's important too because it, what it does is reflects if our faith is real. Uh, he tells them not only to have marriage, but tells them to have children and to do not decrease. Yeah. Not the steps quo, but do not decrease in Babylon. What does that tell the world? It says that the state doesn't uh, guarantee my uh, future. The state is not my provider, my giver of daily bread. But I am going to take action that's very tangible, very real. It's called uh, loving my wife, loving my husband. And um, we're going to come together, share all we can share, hmm. including our fertility, and to do so in a way that is consistent with the cultural mandate and cultural building. To build a culture needs cultural builders. Right, right, yeah. It's part of that, and it reflects reliance upon the Lord as our provider. Jehovah Jireh, you know, our provider. Totally. That's awesome. And uh, so, Jeff, I guess just uh, just one last thing. Um, well, second to last thing, the penultimate thing um, before I let you go here. Um, get, getting down to uh, to the nitty gritty here. We've we've spent a bit of time here, but what is it? To, what does it look like to not only survive but to thrive? Of you, as you've said, in this fallen world, how do we how do we live in Babylon with an eye? With, uh, while at the same time looking up and out and forward? Well, um, one thing is that we, we ought not to be nostalgic. We need to cut the wood, to chop the wood that's in front of us. And so we need to discard a squatter mentality. Rather, we need to lay foundations, which correlatively means we discard world flight. We need to engage the culture as it exists and to hmm. act as a catalyst and as a conduit for human flourishing and redemption. That may mean entering into the seasons of Babylon, learning from what they've learned through common grace, being engaged in art and media and economics and politics, living faithfully. And it also means to recognize that we don't have to be a star in order to be significant. We're playing the long game here. But huh. In playing that long game, we are to live in and interact with the culture. It also means to learn to be competent. You know, we can't, we, it, the time is done for us to simply say we're Christians by having a fish on our bumpers, you know, our bumpers of our car, yeah. <laughs> bumper stickers or on our business cards. We can't, we can't hope to do good unless we do things well. And to 
Christians ought to have the market cornered in, in uh, artistic endeavors, in art, in being a good machinist, in being a good accountant, in being a good lawyer, in being a good writer, in being a good editor, in being all these kinds of areas, not just the so-called spiritual areas. Piety is never a substitute for technique. And we've got to recapture that huh. we are called to excellence, no matter what we're called to be. It's got to be excellent. Understanding that uh, some of the most uh, godly men in the world were, were shipwrecked by deviating from God's design for marriage and family. No, that's well said. I, th I think I remember, and this might be anecdotal uh, or, or apocryphal, as so much of Luther's lore is, but he's supposed to have said that uh, the Christian shoemaker doesn't distinguish himself by putting little crosses on all his shoes. Um, he distinguishes himself by making the best shoes in town. Yeah, that's right. And Dorothy Sayers has something similar in her excellent essay available online called Why Work? Hmm. Or something like that. It's it's brilliant. That that kind of thinking, she understands. What we're talking about, Ryan, is really lordship. You remember how the Decalogue begins? You know, I am the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And that is the simplest uh, and most profound Christian confession we have. Jesus is Lord. And if that's true, there's not one uh, random molecule, there's not one square inch, as Lewis said, that Christ does not claim mine. It is counterclaimed by um, Satan. But guess what? We're here to destroy the works of the devil. That's what John says. Right. The Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What replaces those works? Well, it's good works, works that were prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. And that's why Paul can tell Titus that we get rid of lawlessness. Interesting, he uses the term lawlessness. Yeah, And then he uses yeah. good works. What does it look like to thrive? It's to live faithful, lawful lives, meaning we love God and we love neighbor in the full measure of what that means. Huh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Um, I won't I won't keep you much longer. Uh, I just wanted to ask you for uh, for some recommendations where somebody could go if they wanted to read more about this subject. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend, uh, frankly, Joe Boots' uh, massive work, The Mission of God. I think that is just a fine exposition of some of these themes. I think that the Center for Cultural Leadership that uh, Dr. Sandlin operates in the various uh, monographs available there. I have a number of them there myself. Uh, I think are very helpful to that. I also think that uh, uh, John Frame's website, the Frame Poitras website, has many uh, of these kinds of things that are available uh, for, uh, for free on the Internet to help us do that. And then I would have everybody subscribe to Jubilee because that has very timely uh, materials that are coming out, essays and uh, provocative pieces that help us understand that. But the tone is both intelligent uh, and um, the manner is appropriate. So uh, those those are resources I would go to. Oh, that's uh, that's good of you. Um, appreciate that uh, that mention of Jubilee. Good. But, uh, <laughs> anyways, Jeff, thank you. Uh, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music, and leave us a rating or a review. 
For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.